of noon, I'm excited to introduce you to Didi Finder, a true multi-talent in the world of healthcare. Not only is Didi a skilled nurse, but he's also an author. With a wide range of nursing expertise and a creative flair for writing, Didi has a unique perspective to share. Join us in this awe-inspiring conversation as Didi Finder discusses his experiences in various trades around the world, his passion for writing, and his knack for sharing great stories from his rich background. This episode promises an insightful glimpse into the world of medicine and literature. Let's get started. This episode is brought to you by the 505 Central Food Hall, Albuquerque's urban food hall, which offers nine local vendors under one roof. Whether you're craving spicy hot chicken, authentic Mexican street tacos, juicy burgers and fries, comforting Japanese ramen, fresh vegetarian dishes, Detroit-style pizza, or gourmet sandwiches, you'll find it here. Alternatively, if you're just looking for somewhere to grab drinks downtown, Packies and the Moonwalk Bar offer a variety of local beer, wine, and cocktails. To stay up to date with all the special events taking place at the 505 Central Food Hall, such as Albuquerque Art Walk, live musical performances, the All drag brunch and many more follow them on instagram at 505 central that's a wrap for today's noon shout out make sure you visit the 505 central food hall because life is too short for bland meals and boring evenings thanks for tuning in and remember albuquerque's flavors and entertainment await you located in the heart of downtown albuquerque at fifth and central all right Didi, thank you so much for joining us on the noon podcast i'm so excited to have you on today thank you for having me i am this is an honor to be here i have loved listening to all the episodes so i appreciate that so much man like 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 i just said you know my wife she's gonna see me walk out of the room with a huge old head and be like oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) so you actually reached out to me we've never met before um other than talking on the phone a couple times but what prompted you to reach out to me today so i heard an episode uh with one of my old partners, Noah, and um, some friends texted us a, a link to your podcast, and I listened to it, and I was, one, I didn't know what what he was up to, so it was cool to hear an update about an old friend and partner of mine, and then I was just like, what What other episodes does, does this, like, what, what else can I listen to, and, and I've just been diving into all of your episodes, and I just got hooked, um, and so I wanted to be on your podcast because I have a lot that I want to share. Awesome. About the profession, about leaving the profession, and some of my stories, some of my insane stories, and what I've done to help me get through some of those stories. Well, that's fantastic. Let's get started. Let's start with an introduction. All right. My name is Dee Dee Finer. I'm an author and male nurse. I, <laughs> <laughs> a nurse. I, had a, I, had a, I had a patient that said to me last week, he's like, you're my favorite male nurse. And I was like, does that make me top 50 nurses of all time, like top 100 nurses of all time, you know, it just just male nurse. Okay. But uh, so yes, I'm a male <laughs> nurse. And um, I was a flight nurse for five years, I worked in the ICU for six, uh, I was an EMT basic in the greater Boston area. I was a clinical instructor, Spanish interpreter. But my adventure started in healthcare when I was in the Peace Corps in Guatemala back in 2001, 2002. And if you don't mind, I would love to just jump into a story right away about Please when, do, when I means. was when I was a patient and not uh, a professional oh, healthcare worker. So I'm in Peace Corps, and I wake up one day with horrible abdominal pain, 
like the type of abdominal pain where you just think that if you could just have a bowel movement, everything will be better or just like a really bad fart yeah. and it doesn't get better. And so oh, no. by about midday um, in Peace Corps, you have what are called site mates. So sometimes you live in a small village where you have no other Peace Corps volunteers nearby. And other times you have maybe one or two that are within uh, yeah, a few minutes of where you're living. And so I go to the uh, the market that day to, to pick up some food, even though I had this horrible abdominal pain, I actually run into my site mate, Robin. And I was like, Robin, I'm not, I'm not feeling good. I think I'm just going to kind of take this easy the rest of the day, go home. Hopefully it passes. Um, a few hours go by, it doesn't pass. The Peace Corps, even though this was over 20 years ago, they all gave us cell phones for these type of emergencies that potentially could happen. So I call Robin a few hours later. I was like, I'm I'm just not getting better. She says, well, you should call the Peace Corps nurse. So I call the Peace Corps nurse. Peace Corps nurse says, uh, I think you need to come in to the hospital. Well, the hospital is a three and a half hour bus ride away. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, Kathy was the name of the the nurse, I, God bless Kathy. Uh, she has passed, but I mean, she has helped out so many Peace Corps nurses. Um, she was like this old smoker too, like had that voice, you know, smoke to me yeah. cigarettes, you know, and she was the nurse <laughs> that was taking care of us Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, so Kathy's like, I think you need to come into the hospital. I was like, I, Kathy, it's just, it's the buses aren't running anymore. I'll just, I'll do it first thing in the morning. She's like, no, you need to come in now. So I call back my site mate, Robin, I need to get into the hospital. She goes to the firefighters, says, we need to get this gringo to the hospital. So it's these gringo. firefighters show up to my little house and the ambulances down there are not like our ambulances. It's this like Chevy truck that has this blood soaked World War II looking like cot that is still like there's still stains on it, you know, like dried oh, stains gross. and oh. and they're like, get in, the, get in the cot. Let's go. And I said to him, like, uh, I'll just sit. I'll sit shotgun. <laughs> so the paramedics or the EMTs, I don't know if they were paramedics or EMTs, but they sat in the back and the patient sat up in the front <laughs> with the person who was driving the quote unquote ambulance. And we drove pretty fast for you know, lights and sirens. Um, since it was you know, lights and sirens and it wasn't a public bus that I had to stop, you know, we did it in about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes to get to the hospital. And uh, I remember them, I, I get out, I shake their hands, I walk into the, the hospital, I walk into the ER room, and who I think was the Peace Corps doctor walks into the room. He says, I need to do a prostate exam. I'm 23 years old. And this guy does a prostate exam on me and then leaves the room. The surgeon comes in, does the rebound test, you know, he presses down on the, the lower abdomen, and I, he releases it, and I scream in pain. And he's like, you have appendicitis, we need a surgery. I was like, wait, what just happened then two minutes ago? <laughs> Why did that doctor come in and do a prostate exam on me? Was that the janitor? Was he trying to win a bet? Like, what? <laughs> was that necessary at all? Uh, so this is, the, this is the part, I can't make this up. We go in there and Kathy arrives. So right before I go in, um, she just holds my hand and says, you really need to have this surgery. And I'm freaking out. You know, I don't know anything about medicine at this point. I'm in a, I'm in a foreign country. Um, although my Spanish is pretty good at this time. It's just, you, you start going to reptile brain where you're really freaking out and you don't, you know, the surgeon, luckily he spoke some English. So we go into the OR room. What do you think was the last song I heard 
as the anesthesia was taking over. It was Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. I kid you not. Would you know my name? Like that song. (laughs) This is the last song I hear as I'm getting knocked out. It's not as bad as like Pink Floyd Echoes. If you ever listen to that song, Mm -hmm. like go to about minute 12. That would be probably the worst song to listen to as like the ketamine's kicking in because it's like a bad trip and it sounds like you're in a haunted house yeah <laughs> so by the way i have a good song if if you're about to go into a ketamine induced state i think ocean size music for a nurse would be what i would listen to do you, do you okay. have a song sam no you'll okay. have to send me the link on that oh one. <laughs> i will if you're if you listen to oceanside's music for a nurse i'm sorry it's called music for a nurse i think what what you know i wish it was like music for like a flight medic because that would be like a cooler yeah. sound but music for a nurse i think if you like look over the lyrics there's there's one lyric that's like and a piece of the picture is bitten right out of the middle like that's profound i think this guy was tripping on something and falling in love with the nurse that was giving him the medications as he's going in and out of the sedation state of mind. So I will send you that song afterwards. Yes, please do. (laughs) So how did the surgery go? Surgery went successful. So that was September 10th, 2001. The next day, September 11th happened. So I'm, I'm in the hospital room and my brother works right next to the towers. So I'm in the hospital room. And the nurse comes in, it's like, you're something's happening in your country. And I turn on, uh, the news down there and i think like all of us you know we're kind of in shock just watching what's going on mm-hmm. um and you know see one of the towers is is uh on smoke and then um i remember having to go getting up going to the bathroom coming back and then the the second tower um uh, was on fire at that point and but then it kind of hit me um it was interesting enough though down there in guatemala you know, you have the U.S. Embassy and the Peace Corps is, of course, attached to the federal government. So everything shut down right away. The U.S. Embassy closed. Um, they told all the volunteers that you're on lockdown, don't leave your site. And there I was, just coming out of surgery, worried about my brother, who luckily woke up late that day. Um, so he was stuck in uh, one of the trains heading into the city. Um, but I was in the hospital and they discharged me that day. So I'm walking around. Guatemala City, which at the time was like one of the most dangerous cities in Latin America with just, you know, holding my abdomen, trying to find the nearest hotel because I couldn't go back to my site that day because everything was like on lockdown yeah. for us. Yeah. Jeez, but dude. the surgery went great. Turns out I also had a hernia. So I had a two for one that day. Oh, <laughs> but it wasn't in the prostate, was it? <laughs> no, no, they got it. <laughs> Seriously, like no ultrasound, no CAT scan, like just comes in, throws one up there, and she's like, yeah, you, you, and then leaves the room. uh, I mean, to this day, 20 plus years later in healthcare, like I actually even looked that up in PubMed the other day, because I was, I I gotta look this up. I mean, was he at least an employee? Like, I think so, I don't know. Okay, (laughs) you still don't know, it's it's unknown territory. Yeah. Like I said, was he the janitor just trying to win a bet? I don't know. It's better to just believe that he was an employee at this point, right? I've only been on this podcast for a few minutes, and I've already told one, like, 
rectum story. I'm just <laughs> It's only gonna get better from here, but <laughs> I swear I have other stories. I know. <laughs> oh, that's probably one of the best stories I've heard so far though. Like so it tells you what kind of a sick humor I have. Yes. Well we're we are in healthcare. I, I yes. think when you do this, we have that type of dark humor. It, it gets us through some some tragic stuff that we see all the time. Somebody once said, like, can you describe what it's like to be in healthcare, like that dark type of humor? And I'm like, you remember Austin Powers? When Austin Powers, he, he puts the guy um, in some type of, like, tank that's got sharks and they bite the head off. And then he pulls the, the guy out, the bad guy out of the tank and the guy's missing the head he's like well don't lose your head about it you know like that's <laughs> that's healthcare humor right there that is a good <clears throat> that's a good story to use it's a good analogy for for healthcare i i 100 approve of that <laughs> yes <laughs> so two days ago in the mail i got your book and i'm so excited that you sent it do you want to tell me the title of the book yeah it's ready left ready right and i am so stoked you got it what prompted that title? The title is, I used to fly fixed wing rotor. Uh, I also did critical ground transport. And I worked for a few different flight companies, but one flight company during the critical phases of flying and taking off and landing, the pilot would always say to the crew members in the back, guys ready, ready for takeoff or ready for landing. And he would say, if you're sitting on the left side, ready left, you're sitting on the right, ready right. And I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, that's a great title right there. I was thinking of the name Shit Magnets, because I think that would also be an appropriate title. That would be a good one. <laughs> but after much consideration, like, I just don't think I could put that on Amazon, KDP, you know, <laughs> so I think Ready Left, Ready Right as an appropriate title to it. That No, that's great. And honestly, if you're Googling Shit Magnets, you don't know what's coming <laughs> up, right? Like, I don't know. I would be kind of afraid to Google that. <laughs> yeah. Window liquor, I think, would also be appropriate. Yeah, Window liquor would be a good one. Mm. <laughs> that's fantastic. So I have I have to say I haven't uh I haven't read any of the, the book yet, but I've kind of flipped through it and it's all stories. It's actually fictional based. So what I did okay. was I took um as you're flipping through it, you might have gone um I've taken three it's three scene calls that drop all at the same time and it's this flight medic's first day at this medevac company so shit has just hit the fan and one of the things that when i was a flight nurse that as you're flying out in the helicopter and you're about to land on an interstate that was closed to you because somebody had a bad day as a flight nurse you just don't necessarily know really what you're getting into nor how no and where they are in the abcs and I felt sometimes that I was in the patient and everybody that was there was was a little bit screwed. Like we, you are up against some horrible circumstances and we need to get you to a hospital and just time is against you and the circumstances are against you. But then as the call evolves, you realize that all the training that you've had, all the experience that you've had as a flight nurse or a flight medic, all the people that are on the scene, the EMTs, the paramedics, this is decades of experience that's being driven into this one call right now. And I always thought it would be cool to write a book that as you're reading the book, you start getting the backstories of the people that are running the call. Because although you kind of feel like this patient is, is up against some bad odds, 
they're actually going to be taken care of and they're in great hands, but you don't feel that at the time because you don't know everybody's backstory. So that's, that's what I write this. I wrote this book in the sense of like crashed. I, I thought crash was a great movie, but mm-hmm. um, crash is one of those things where you have multiple stories that are going on at the same time and they all converge together. And then you also get the backstories as you're reading it. No, that's a really cool premise. And that was a great movie. So getting to be able to put that in the book at the same time is really a really cool way of thinking. I'm really excited to read that book and I appreciate you for sending it to me. I can't wait for to hear your feedback about it. Someone who's working in the business, I want to know like, hey, you know, you're kind of full of shit or no, this is actually legit. As the reason why I wrote the book is that I, I'm no longer in the business. I'm no longer a flight nurse. I work in intervention radiology now as a nurse. I worked in a toxic work environment and I was not sleeping. And the two combos just knocked me out. But I worked with some giants in the profession. I worked with some men and women who were the best people I've ever met. And I always felt that I wanted to pay homage to these people. I wanted I wanted their names or their not their names, sorry, but their their personality, their characters, their energy, their dedication, their drive to be the best that they could be, the type of care they provided to patients that I saw. I wanted to immortalize that and have that in a book. So then this book, even though it's fictional, it can be like the con the kitchen confidential by Anthony Bourdain. It can be our version of it where even if you're in the, you know, even if you don't want to read it because you're like, well, this this feels like I'm at work if I read this, but you can give it to somebody that's like, yeah, this is pretty accurate. This is what the job is like, even though it's a fictional novel. And the reason why it is fiction is because I, I, I want to be able to incorporate other themes in a book that you can't necessarily do in the nonfiction world, like toxic work environment, like having a horrible boss and incorporate that boss into the story more so than what normally would would probably happen. Since you brought it up again, other than the boss specifically, like what made it such a toxic environment? And I don't want to drop names of companies or anything like that. I just want to know like what for you made it feel like that? You're right. I, I'm of course not going to drop names um, or companies. And I do want to say I've had some great bosses over my years as well at flight companies. Overall, it was like working for a dictator though. It was somebody that did not value their employees the helicopters were more important than their employees. Mandatory overtime, which, okay, and that happens. That doesn't make it a toxic work environment. But when you have a difficult work environment on top of a boss that doesn't value their their employees, it makes it even more difficult. So we'd have mandatory overtime. We'd flip back and forth between days and nights. So that would mess with the sleep. But then when the call went south on us and we needed help, for example, it was always on us. We were discouraged to call medical control, for example. That would, quote unquote, make the program look weak. Our get out of jail free card when we need help from from the doctor, because this is beyond our scope of practice, was looked down upon. If we had to call off sick, we were told, get some antibiotics and just come in. Rest was highly discouraged. The quote was, we're stealing from the company during rest time. If you were a woman and you had your hair down, you're going to get yelled at. Even if it was on a holiday and you were just by yourself charting, that was looked down upon. Man, that sounds pretty bad. I have so many more examples. It's just this laundry list. But it was that feeling that if if this call doesn't go right, and a lot of times it can't, and you need help from the administration to, to either back you up with your decision or maybe get you some resources because you're just not feeling right after this call, you couldn't reach out to them. 
wonderful people though I worked with at that white company. But uh, like I said, that on top of not sleeping, it just it just knocked me out of the game. After that, I went back to what I knew, and that was the ICU. I worked in the ICU for six years. So after flying, I just wanted to go back to a familiar environment. So I went to the ICU. Not a good decision when it was COVID. <laughs> oh, no. not, not a good decision when it was a three to one ratio uh, and no. COVID was during, it was during like the height of the Delta variant. Um, oh. I had some crazy stories from that and that burns me out so fast where my love for critical care, emergency care was just, it quickly went away. And luckily I found a job working in intervention radiology, which is where I am today. So again, writing a book is also help me try to get back to a profession that I do miss. I don't necessarily miss flying, but I miss people. I miss helping people in those situations that you can only find yourself in as a flight medic or a flight nurse. Sure. The experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what really pushed you to write the book? Is it something you had wanted to do or? Dumb and Dumber is one of my favorite comedy movies. Yeah. And, Farley Brothers, I, I heard that the way they write comedy movies is they write really funny scenes and then they just try to link them together. I've always, ever since I was in third grade, I've always been writing. And what has helped me get through traumatic calls is also writing. So I'll share you one a little bit later. But I have a pretty extensive journal of some calls and some, of course, just stick with you more than others. And then also just like, like I was saying, want to pay homage to the people that I worked with. Just looking back at my journal and as I was processing a few of those calls out and as some of the, the newer calls were, were happening, um, I just had this idea of, of, you know, I can link these together and make a really good story, really good fictional story. Of course, take the calls that I was running, fictionalize them, you know, change them, totally change them. Uh, um, but I can link these all together and make a great book. And that's hopefully hopefully what you'll read. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, just your description has been a really good informative description and it sounds like all together it's going to be really good. And I look forward to volume number 2 Ship Magnets coming out <laughs> <laughs> coming out eventually. So when do you plan on um, dropping the book for everybody else? I was going to drop it on October 28th, uh, first responder day. That's always been a goal for the last over a year. Um but with now coming on your podcast and just the amount of great feedback I've been getting from the advanced copies I've sent out to people, I'm going to release this when this podcast comes out. Because I would love that's for the fantastic. listeners, if people are listening to this right now and getting fired up for the book, cool, that's great. Um, but I would love for the book to be available. Because the other thing that this book is going to do is that uh, a portion of the proceeds will go to three different nonprofit organizations that I'm teaming up with. Debrief in the Frontlines, 62 Romeo, and the Overwatch Collective. These three organizations I've vetted over the last few months, and they're just doing fantastic work. And this is my way of giving back to the first responder and nursing community. So every time the book is bought, portions of proceeds will go to those three organizations, and they all have different focuses too. So the Overwatch Collective, if you haven't heard of it, they have a free app. It's fantastic. But they provide mental health services and therapy to first responders. They're in I think over 20 of the 50 states uh, right now. And so they vet out the mental health therapist that if you're a first responder, you want to go to somebody who's familiar with our world. You don't yes. necessarily want to go to anybody. That's very important to establish a, um, 
a healthy relationship with somebody that knows what we've been dealing with. So they kind of do the groundwork for us. And they also pay for the first session if you can't afford it. You have to submit an application. And then they have a tier system after that. But they're a fantastic organization. 62 Romeo is another nonprofit that I actually use their services when it comes to sleep. So they are helping first responders sleep. I was on Ambien for 10 years. And when I decided to finally get off of it uh, about a year ago, I still wasn't sleeping. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And it's an art, even though it's so natural. But for me, it, it is has to become this dedicated process to trying to fall asleep. And it's all stuff we know, but 62 Romeo was a six-week program that I went through. And it really broke things down about this is the type of sleeping environment you need. Here are breathing techniques that you can use to help you sleep. Here's some technology that is available if you have the means to go by that might help you sleep a little bit more um, profound. And I would love to go over that as well. And then the, the third nonprofit organization I'll be supporting is Debriefing the Frontlines. And they provide debriefing sessions for nurses. So you can contact them, pay for a few different sessions. I think they also are able, they have a, a side of their nonprofit where they are also paying for the sessions too, if you can't afford it. And hopefully this book will help them as well. But nurses paramedics first responders when you go on a call i mean you guys see some traumatic stuff and it's some heavy heavy stuff it's like a, a massive machete cut where a nurse on the other hand will be death by a thousand cuts you know they go in they might not see the mechanisms of injury but they're dealing with the aftermath of when the family comes in and sees their loved ones for the first time at bedside and the screams that you hear from them or helping a patient pass in the icu that is, has gone from comfort care. Uh, I find that as traumatic because you're exposed to it over and over again, multiple times during a day. And when your patient passes, it's like, guess what? You're getting an admit. Hurry up. Yeah. There's, there's no the time room. to debrief. clean go. up the room. Yeah. There's that metaphor of like when you're getting out of the room, you just, you know, you hit the alcohol, rub it on your hands, and you're going to the next room, and that's your time to debrief, and that's all you have. So I am fired up to support these three nonprofit organizations. No, that's super, super cool, man. And we'll be throwing the links um, for those in the episode, but where can they get your book at? It's going to be on Amazon um, in about two weeks. So go to Amazon, put in ready, left, ready, right. It'll be there. If you go to my website too, there'll be a link on there as well. ddfinder.com. Perfect. And that's D's in Delta, D's in Delta, finder.com. That's it. Perfect. That's super easy, man. Cool. Well, thanks for writing the book and then thanks, you know, for donating to those charities. It takes a lot of effort and you're putting in the time for that because you put the time in for the book and then to give away some of your, your proceeds to those charities is a really cool thing, man. So that's super cool. Absolutely. If I'm going to make it to the top, I want to bring some mofos with me. There you go. <laughs> Take us all. <laughs> so let's kind of go into some of the calls that you've had. Um, and it's up to you how you want to start. I know you said you've got some notes down there. So <laughs> I, I would like to start with an embarrassing call. Oh, per I love can, those can ones. We, yes. <laughs> so it, it's always when it's like your, your first few months as either like a flight nurse, flight medic. For me, it was when I was an EMT basic in the greater Boston area. So, you know, you don't know shit as an EMT basic for your first month when yeah. you go out there. Like, God bless every new EMT basic. I just want to hug you right now. Like, you're going to get it. 
but your first few months are so rough. So I get, it's my first 911 call and I should explain the ambulance system that we're in. We ran two EMT basics. And when the call went south, you call in the, the medics. So I think Albuquerque, where you're at, I think it's an EMT and a paramedic on the same truck. Is that right? That's how it used to be. I think now they're running ILS 911 calls. So oh, greater Boston area. I mean, you have hospitals everywhere, which is a great thing. So you had really short transport times. And a lot of times you just need to scoop and go. But I had a, my first 911 call was man found down and at a house. And I walk in, we're first on scene. There's no fire. There's no police. And I walk in and it's this guy on the ground and there's coffee ground emesis everywhere. And he's passed out. So one, I'm like, I don't know what that is. That looks weird. <laughs> I mean, now I know what it is. But it doesn't like, look very good. <laughs> this, this doesn't look good. And the- uh, Ooh, and I bet it smells Spanish... great too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Spanish speaking only. Like everybody in the house is Spanish speaking. Which I was totally fine with. Um, you know, after living in Latin America for about six years, I was like, I'm in my wheelhouse, but I'm also not in my wheelhouse. Yeah. I am like fumbling trying to get my gloves on to just do a basic assessment. And the fire department walks in, and the fire department in the greater Boston area and the Rivia and Chelsea area, they are salty. I know. <laughs> I love my I love my boys and and right over there, but man, like 20 years ago those departments man. so this this out chief somebody walks in and he's like does anybody speak english in here and then i raised my hand i was like i do sir <laughs> but it wasn't because i i i meant to say like i speak spanish but i was just answering his question then all these massive firefighters just like stopped and then all their heads turned to look at like the rookie wearing like his little white uniform, trying to put his gloves on. So extremely, I mean, that was like a fun, funny, embarrassing. Um, hopefully we haven't all done this, but I've dropped a patient on a stretcher before. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's a, that's a, that can be very bad. That, yeah. And it was my, my very first flight as a flight nurse. Oh, I was no. working for, yep. And, I mean, shame on me, one, for dropping the patient, but also I have an EMT background. I should have known. My partner was pulling out the, the stretcher from back of the ambulance, and he was having trouble engaging the wheels to come under. And for whatever bright reason, I unlatched where the hook was. And so I was used, he was used pushing the stretcher back in to try to re-engage or disengage the, the wheels to come down. And then he pulled it forward and unlatched the whole thing oh yeah did it at least of... stay in that upright like it didn't tip right it, it didn't tip i mean he was That's supine good. um but it was a, a recent paraplegic patient that was flying to craig's hospital and the mom was watching and i felt like shit the entire flight up and ran the rest of the call once we were done i was done i was crying i even called my boss and i was like i think i'm done one flight was good enough for me. I think I'm done. And, yeah. and she brought me in and she was like, this was just, you know, a bad incident. We look at this as you just need a little bit more training. Um, maybe I had some cobwebs up there. Maybe you were nervous. We're just going to train this out of you. And that's what she did. And never happens again. Stayed <laughs> in the flight world for five more years after that. 
Oh, that's good that you were able to push past that because that can be embarrassing and, like you were saying, upsetting, quite upsetting um, when accidents like that happen. But it's good that you didn't just hide it and, you know, shove it under the rug for later. Sounds like you went through all the right steps. And then talking to your partner about it, like, hey, we should have communicated better about that, you know. Um, But having a great boss that backs you up, like not saying, you know, how are you going to be so dumb? Just, we just, you know what? We need to train you more. Let's get you trained up on this. You're going to be a good flight nurse. You have the background for it. Don't let this, don't let this chew you up inside more than it already is. Let's just train this out of you. And then train other people too, right? Like make sure yeah. that nobody you train does the same mistakes. Yes. Or talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Relive that horrifying experience, yeah. right? <laughs> It happens so are, to the best of us. Yeah, those were some of my more embarrassing. Um, when I was learning Spanish, I have a really good embarrassing story. It's not EMS related, but it's pretty quick. So I walk in. I walk into. Uh, I'm in Ecuador. I lived in Ecuador for a year before I, I got into healthcare, and so I'm in, in Quito, and I, I walk into this uh, grocery store, and I was like, "Hey, where are the batteries?" And the guy looks at me really weird. He's like excuse me he's like okay clearly i just need to slow down and speak louder so i was like where are the batteries and then he looks at me he's like i was asking where the prostitutes were the difference between <laughs> batteries and prostitutes was one l one l <laughs> donde están las pilas and donde están las pillas like it sounds very very similar <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only imagine the looks you were getting. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah. This like tall white dude. That's yeah. And I'm only five nine, but I'm huge down there. You know, this tall white dude just like yelling, "Where are the prostitutes in this grocery store?" Yeah. <laughs> so I had uh, my fire guys. Oh, those assholes! They. <laughs> we were sitting around at a at a barbecue one day. We were all having a good time, and it, this was was one of my ex girlfriends. We'd only been dating for like a week you know we didn't know each other super well but the guys were like we were all hanging out talking and they were telling her do you know how to ask for dark beer in spanish and she was like no and i love dark beer like teach me how to say how like i want dark beer in spanish so they said okay you'll walk up to the bartender and you will say chupa mi verga por <laughs> okay so I knew something was fishy because they all were like kind of smirking and trying to hold back laughs and she starts repeating it, chupa mi verga, por favor. <laughs> and I was like, something's not right here. So I <laughs> I was working at my parents' shop the next day and I told my dad, I was like, dad, what does chupa mi verga mean? And he was like, who fucking taught you that? And I was like, the fire guys were teaching that yesterday. And he was like, it means suck my dick in Spanish. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, God, I better go tell her before she fucking goes and says something to somebody else. (laughs) Those assholes. (laughs) Probably one of my favorite stories. (laughs) I mean, a fire dude telling you, teaching you Spanish, like, you know, right there. You're like, this is not going to be, this is not going to be grammatically correct, first of all. There's probably going to be swear words in it. (laughs) Yes. I knew something was fishy because they were all just kind of cracking up, like, but not making a big show of it, you know? So I was like, oh, this is, 
I better go confirm this with somebody else before I <laughs> oh, go any further. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. There's um, so I used to one of the jobs, uh, one of my first jobs in healthcare, and a great, funny, embarrassing story. It's not mine, but it's along the same lines. Is um, I used to work for a nonprofit called Partner for Surgery. Partner for Surgery works down in Guatemala, and there's a lot of other nonprofits that go down into Guatemala to provide surgical services to people that can't afford it. They don't really have a good way of advertising that, hey, we're coming down, we're going to be doing free cleft lip of palate surgeries or cataract surgeries. So we're the nonprofit that provided the bridge between the rural communities that brought the patient into the hospital that these surgeons were performing the surgeries almost for free. And then we would provide the convalescence and then bring it back out to um, uh, bring it back out to where they came from. In Guatemala, Spanish is only one language. There is 23 other languages in Guatemala, and then there's dialects of those languages. So tapping into my Peace Corps resources down there, a lot of volunteers, they speak multiple languages. So I had this one badass volunteer that I knew that spoke Spanish and, and Kekshi, which is one of the Mayan languages. So as the director of this nonprofit, I would go out to these villages where I would have like a Peace Corps volunteer that could provide some of the interpretation. Of course, we would have to get other interpreters because we would have like hundreds of people that would show up for these what we call medical missions or jornadas where we would identify the surgical candidates that day and then on a later date we'd bring them into the hospital for the surgery so we would bring in doctors and, and nurses out to these villages where they could they could do the triage so i had my friend uh brian and he was one of my interpreters there on this day and i look over so this is like north american doctor i think he's canadian and he was asking brian to translate to this, what looked like a National Geographic Mayan woman, you know, wearing the typical corte. The, um, she looked like she could have been like, like on the cover. And I see Brian just turn beet red. I mean, he was just like, it was like the color of my shirt, just like red, red. And I see this like little Mayan woman just hunched over, start snickering. And I go up to Brian, I'm like, Brian, what's going on, man? He's like, dude. I don't know the proper word for vagina. He was, <laughs> he was asking this little Mayan woman, does your pussy hurt when you're fucking? Because he didn't know how to say, does your vagina hurt when you're having intercourse? <laughs> you oh, oh, goodness. Well. Yeah. Uh, and he... <laughs> The next hornada we had, he knew all the appropriate medical terms after that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully she taught him well. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing, she wasn't like walking away offended. She was just laughing. Because I think Brian was probably saying in the way, like, I am so sorry. I don't know how to say this, but uh, I don't know the proper word. Because you know, he learned he learned street kekshi. He was hanging out with like all his kekshi friends. They weren't teaching him proper anatomical kekshi. No. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's actually a doctor now. He's doing good for himself. Oh, good. <laughs> he probably tells that story a lot then. <laughs> oh, if he doesn't, I need to remind him. To yes, him probably. This. Hey, Brian, remember the time? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> that poor lady, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love those stories. That's so great. And I, there's, that's the great thing about being a first responder and nurse is like you have a lifetime of stories. Yes. You get a lifetime of trauma, but you get a lifetime of stories. 
And you tend to put yourself in very uncomfortable positions more so, I think, than, than the average person. You know, because you're walking into people's houses and you never know what you're going to walk into. I always thought, for me, uh, healthcare is kind of like getting into a hot tub where, like, you know, you dip your toe in into it. And then all of a sudden, 30 seconds later, you're like up to your neck. You're like, how did I get myself into this? And and very quickly, yeah, in, as EMTs and paramedics, you're walking into somebody's house. God, I remember walking into somebody's house. It was like my second call as an EMT. I walk in. It's three o'clock in the morning. I got to back up because it wasn't me. I wasn't the first on scene, but three o'clock in the morning, the paramedics get sent out. So you know it's going to be bad when the paramedics are sent out on the call first as opposed to the, to the basics. And then five minutes later, we're called out to the scene. It's like, oh, this is, this is going to be good because we're going to be driving the medics. We get out and there is, I don't know how many fire trucks, I don't know how many cops, but it looked... It, it looked like an MCI for this one house. I walk in, blood everywhere, blood on the walls, blood, a trail of blood leading into this bathroom, blood that's being painted like, like someone, almost like the shining, you know, that scene when the elevator like opens up. Two guys found down. But what I was distracted by was this massive sex swing that was in the middle of the living room like it was like it was Christmas and that's the Christmas tree that you walk in and it's like <laughs> I mean, they weren't disguising it. I mean, it's just fine. Everybody, everybody has their thing. But if you were to just open up the shades to their first floor apartment and we're like looking in, you would see it right there and just pornography everywhere. And you talk about when you do an assessment, you're looking, you know, you want to avoid the distraction injuries. Like I was distracted by like just the the entire layout of this like why is this not in the bedroom or the basement like why does this have to be in the living room yeah and i was like well that's how they live I'm like okay but um i guess one of them the gimp i mean he was kind of dressed like the gimp was like all leathered out he got his there was a fight according to the neighbors there's some loud noises there's a fight the gimp lost the fight bad so his face was like like you could peel off his face and then the mm-hmm. other guy decided to overdose on cocaine so um paramedics just seeing them work their magic on two totally different patients you have this overdose over here that you didn't really know was an overdose at the time but he quickly figured it out and you have this uh, trauma patient over here and then being in the back of a truck with the paramedic working i was like these god paramedics are just amazing how are they how are they able to just work so fast look at the scene like okay that's interesting but we need to work on the patient where i'm just like i'm distracted (laughs) (laughs) like a squirrel god God bless paramedics that's all i gotta say there have been some crazy i've never walked into a sex swing in the living room but you know i've seen quite a few hoarder houses those are really bad especially with the bugs and the animals and well bugs are the worst dude especially if you know there's like bed bugs involved oh man that's just one of those ones that you can't, you don't feel clean. Even after like, you know, 10 showers, you're still just like, this is so gross. Yeah, you get that. I got a pretty big beard. So when I, when I was working in the ICU, I'd sometimes rock the beard and other times I'd be clean shaving because it's like, oh, you get the bed bug patient. So then you're like putting net, that like net over the, over my beard and just everything. You just get the, yeah. Like even thinking about it right now. Yeah, the heebie-jeebies are just, just gross. Yeah, and and props to you for working in the ICU, man. I oral care is just one of those things. 
I never want to do oral care. You know, there's like a satisfaction when it comes to to that in a weird way. Like you are helping somebody that just can't do anything for themselves. It's something like oral care. I mean, can you imagine not brushing your teeth for days at a time? How dry your mouth would be with your mouth open with an ET tube sticking out of it. And just and if you don't move the ET tube, the breakdown that you get around the mouth. So just doing little things like that. It, you look back on that like, man, that was uh, in a weird way something special, even though it's oral care. <laughs> Yeah, no, good for you. Like props to you. There are things I don't do mouths and I don't do butts, and <laughs> oh God, you get a I lot get of that butts. option. <laughs> I, see, I know. I was thinking, like, how many asses have I cleaned in my career? Like, and it's it's in the thousands. Yeah, I dude, I worked an overnight once, where it was the clocks got set back an hour, so that gave me an extra hour at work. <laughs> and it turns out, I had the shitter on the floor. Oh, she shat. No. A wake patient who just couldn't make it to the toilet in time, and she wasn't seated. Thank God. Oh, but she yeah. shat every hour. I am not joking. Every hour on the hour, thirteen bowel movements in one shift <laughs> God, from dude. one patient. It was to the point by bowel movement number nine, I was rooting for her because I was like, "Let's break the record. Let's get into the team. Break the record. Let's go." <laughs> I mean, was it was it not soft enough? You couldn't do a, an FMS or a rectal tube for her. It it was like so the FMSs back in those days, where there was like a contraindication of if their platelets were a certain amount, you know, you couldn't put an FMS in there because, um, and I I don't remember all the details. She might have been a liver patient, so she had some you know pretty funky numbers. Uh, platelets were down and. It was just a patient that did not qualify for an FMS. And typically an FMS on a awake patient, you don't, you don't really want to, you know, that's going to be uncomfortable. Like, hey, I'm sorry, you're wide awake, but I got to put an FMS in you. Um, I would have liked to, but she didn't qualify. So I got to clean her up 13 times. So multiply that by, you know, six years, a few patients. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, so when I started at the ER, that was kind of... Um... Oh, that was a wake-up call for me. Uh, it was kind of a joke for my wife, too, you know, because, you know, obviously I'm gay. So being a paramedic and working in the ER, one of the main things you do is Foley's. Oh. So as a lesbian, you know, I've probably seen more dick than most people. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, also more vagina than most people. <laughs> oh, that should be the caption of this episode. <laughs> it might be i we don't know yet <laughs> i i hate foley's like i and, and as a guy like if i have to do a foley on a female i always i i just trade I'm like hey can you put this foley in or can you have oh i got a great foley story actually so here's a situation where uh first year of nursing it was on sack floor and we had a, a spanish-speaking mexican lady come in who's confused so like, ah, we got to put a Foley in them. So she, she was made to the ER, got sent up to the sack floor and the laundry, laundry list of things you got to do. Got labs, got to figure out why she's confused, blood cultures, put a Foley in. So I asked, uh, asked Joan, um, nurse I used to work with, God, she was awesome. So, Hey, I got to put a Foley in. One, I'm not good at this. Two, I don't want to do it. Three, can you be in the room with me? She's like, yeah, but you're going to do it because you're new and you need to figure it out. So she goes in there and, um, you know, explain to the woman like, hey, we got to put a Foley on. I'm so sorry. 
we lift up her gown, <laughs> we take off the blankets, and this this smell just hit Joan and I, where we just we just it was that little look. We just like looked at each other a little bit. We didn't want to. You know, we're poker faces were on, but we didn't want to give it away. And I was like, Joan, um, are you smelling what I'm smelling? And this is her exact quote. She goes, I guess we're not eating fish tacos for lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma had a chlamydia because she was getting it on. Good for her. Good for her. (laughs) Oh, that's nasty. Uh chlamydia and syphilis man you don't you don't realize how bad syphilis is until it's catching up to you in like your 70s and then you're just fucked <laughs> oh, oh, I, how many calls did you run on elderly patients in retirement homes that were confused and it turns out they have there's a viagra <laughs> so, it's like, viagra but... you know, like everybody's getting utis and Sexually yeah. transmitted diseases again, thanks to these wonderful <laughs> medications. Uh, gotta give it to them though. Like, good for you. <laughs> I that, that bothers me about our healthcare system is that you know so much of our efforts are to bringing back boners and older men, but, but preventative medicine. No, we're not going to spend a dollar on that. Right, dude. <laughs> you can have these for free, but uh... my, my my father he called me once and. If you're the paramedic or the nurse in the family, you're getting the calls about everything. every time. <laughs> so my dad called me up. He's like, "Dee Dee, I still want to be able to perform. What do you think, Viagra or Cialis?" I was like, "Dad, this is like, I, are you? <laughs> do you think in nursing school we do we like we read double blind studies about like Viagra or Cialis and see which one is more effective? And why are you asking your son this?" Like, I don't, I don't want to know what you're doing with my mother-in-law. Like, that's just... <laughs> this is beyond me, out. okay? I can't get that thought in my mind, so... So, <laughs> a little off topic, but because I'm a paramedic and it's family-oriented. We went to Vegas uh, several years ago, and, you know, when you go to Vegas, you have a good time, right? So we were all drinking. My father-in-law was drinking a lot. He got put to bed early because he was drinking too much. So we went out, uh, put him to bed, went back out. We were having a good time, drank for a couple more hours. And then we all went to bed. Well, my my mother-in-law came into our room and she's like, something's wrong, I can't wake him up. Like, can you please oh, just no. come and check him? He's not moving. This motherfucker sleeps on his back I like this all the time. This is just his normal sleeping, like <laughs> on his back, face forward. That's just his natural sleep, but she couldn't get him to wake up. So I go in and I'm like, hey, hey, wake up. And I do the little shake, nothing, you know, lifted his eyelid, nothing. So what's the next natural move? I'm going to do a sternal rub on him, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep in mind, I've also been drinking, okay? <laughs> so I may or may not have sternal rubbed him a little too hard. <laughs> he fucking, he sat up out of the bed so fast. Like, whoa! (laughs) He was very upset that I sternal rubbed him. He still, to this day, talks about that sternal rub. He (laughs) He was so drunk he didn't remember. (laughs) I went went camping once, and I 
I was an EMT basic back then. So I, I had some medicine underneath me at this point. Um, and it was actually a bachelor party. And my friend who was getting married wanted all of us just to go out camping in Montana. It was a great time. A ton of drinking though. And I can only have one or two. And I, I, that's enough for me. Like with Gilbert syndrome, which I have elevated Billy room. And like, I just, if I have more than a few, like I just, I just don't feel good. Mm-hmm. So I have, you know, my limited amount. And this other guy just, just keeps going hard. <laughs> and we're in front of a lake and he decided at one o'clock in the morning, he stumbled out of his tents and just started walking into the lake. Oh and my it's gosh. Freezing in there. And I'm, I'm the only one that hears this of like this, this guy's like, ah, yeah, and splashing of water. And I get out and I, I didn't know him because you know, bachelor party is a bunch of guys there that, you know, some know each other or not, but I, I, whatever his name was, I called him. I was like, to get, get the fuck back in here. Let's, let's go. So I had to like coach him back in and he's just shivering like horribly bad. So Jesus. his tent was in the water. Like he, he like he had marched out. So this guy has no tent. He's got no sleeping bag. Everything is wet. So now I'm like, oh, this is like the Saints with Val Kilmer in Elizabeth Shoe. So I'm gonna have to like get his clothes off, get my clothes off, hug him with my body. Oh my god! In the sleeping bag. I did not do that. I hope See, that's not. where movies go. This is where movies go wrong. It's like I am not gonna get how that. Works. Body to body contacts. Yeah, so is, I wrap it a, them up. is it pull to hole or pull to pull? <laughs> <laughs> so I throw this guy in a bunch of blankets and I did have him sleep in the tent next to me, but I was like, I'm not doing the saint. I'm not doing the bell killer. I, <laughs> I don't care. I didn't see that in the books. Just wrap him up. Yeah. And I, you know, he didn't die of hypothermia. I think I did my job. Sounds like it. <laughs> I freaking hate. Sometimes it's a curse being an EMT because you come up on those things, you know, or like you're the you are now the responsible party. Oh. Even if you've all been drinking, it doesn't matter where you're at. I, I think I've had more saves on my days off sometimes than on my days on. Like, oh, I remember no. now, like on in Albuquerque, <laughs> especially. Like I lived there for the lands of, of entrapment, right? Yeah, I lived there for for well over a decade and loved it. By the way, best sunsets oh, ever. That's good. Green chili, like totally underrated cuisine. If anybody mm-hmm. hasn't been to Albuquerque and you're listening to this, like you you need to go visit. Maybe go to Las Cruces instead. They have good green chili too. <laughs> oh yes. So this guy, I go. Uh, I used to go climbing all the time up in the Sandias. And if you go, I think it's the top of Comanche. There's a, I think it's called the Whitewash Cliff where you can actually repel down from it. And it's pretty, it's a short hike from the parking lot, probably about, I don't know, 50, 70 meters cliff. And you can anchor up the top and you can repel down, or you can go around the sides of this cliff that is a, a tougher hike, but it's totally doable. So the closer that you get towards the middle of it, scarier it gets. So I'm I'm just doing a little hike in the afternoon, trying to get outside, get away from uh, being an ICU nurse. and. I see this guy on the cliff, just just frozen. And I'm I'm in the parking lot, and as I'm walking up, I'm just, I'm seeing this somebody up there on the cliff. Just all right, well maybe he's climbing. I'll get a little bit closer, see what he's up to. As I get closer, about two minutes later, he hasn't moved at all. So I'm about parallel to him now, and I'm about 20, 30 meters up, and probably about 20, 30 meters away as well. And I yell over, I'm like, "Hey, man, you all right?" And he's like, "Ah." Uh, Hey, dude, uh, 
I gave us a little bit of help. And it was this high school kid. He had a backpack on. And I think he just wanted to go for a hike and go up these like little scrambling route. And then he just got stuck where he couldn't oh. go higher. He couldn't go left. He couldn't go right. He didn't know how to down climb. And you look at his gear. He's like, this is not a climber. You know, he's no. wearing, no, he's wearing, uh, you know, the shoes are not appropriate for this situation. And to the right, I see actual climbers who are repelling down and not even paid attention. Like, hey, we got a stuck high school kid over here. So I was like, all right, man, you just stay there. You like double double. You don't go dying on me. <laughs> don't go dying on me. <laughs> don't look down. So I, I climb up to the top where the climbers are. I grab one of the ropes. I anchor it to a tree up above. And then I repel myself down without a harness, kind of like a old Batman and Robin style, you know? Yes. <laughs> and get to the where he was, take his backpack off. I'm like, dude, you're doing great, man. We'll, we'll get you out of this. And then we, I taught him how to repel down to the next ledge and then walk off from there. And you know, I'm just trying to, he was so frightened. He was oh. just like shaking, so scared. I was like, man, it, it's okay. Now you know next time. And then up and above, the, the climbers are like these older people that were doing the repelling. They're like yelling down like life advice to the to the guys like, that's what you get when you don't know what you're doing. Next time wear better shoes, you should learn you're how to assholes. climb. Like, Dude, shut the fuck up. You didn't even do anything to rescue this Yeah. <laughs> Jerks. <laughs> well, good for you, man. I think, I think everybody uh, that I surround myself with knows that I don't work on my days off. So <laughs> I make kind of a big deal of it when we're all hanging out. Like I'll call 911 for you, but that's about all you're going to get from me. <laughs> yeah. You got, you got blinders on totally. Just yeah. Like, <laughs> there was this time in uh, Guatemala when I was, I hope I'm not like that guy or that girl in American Pie like that one time in that band camp. Time? Yeah. Band camp. <laughs> right. I had a flute. I just, I just, I know. I just got so many stories from down there. But, it's um, all good, man. <laughs> so I used to drive the shuttle van and it would say doctors on the side. And that's how I transported some nurses and doctors around there. But I'm like 25 years old driving this you know, big old shuttle van down there, having a great time. And uh, I would go out to some really far away villages. Uh, you, you give me a map. I, I didn't know where we were. One time out in the middle of nowhere, I'm coming up and over a hill and this guy is just passed down on the road. And I stopped the car because like, this is a setup. I'm about to get ambushed. I have been, I've been carjacked. I have been robbed at Machete Point. I've been robbed by like a gang of teenagers before. Like I have, my situation awareness is high. So as soon as I come up and over a hill, I see this guy pass out in the middle of the road. I was like, oh shit. I am looking around for for something that's about to happen. Like guys are gonna come out with machetes or machine guns and rob me, which is, which happens down there, especially on the rural areas. So I'm stopped for a minute or two. I'm just looking, roll the windows down, listening, nothing. I get out of the van, engine's still on, nothing still. I take the van, I slowly creep towards him. He's not moving. And then I drive past Parked the shell van about 10 yards away. Nothing's happened. So I'm like, all right, I think I'm safe. Turn the shell van off, and I walk towards the guy. As soon as I'm walking towards the guy, around the corner comes this truck. I was like, oh, now I'm fucked. I'm about to get robbed right here. And it was, it was a truck full of passengers, and they pull up the exact moment I am walking up to this guy. It looks like I had just hit this guy Oh my God. And parked <laughs> 20 yards away from him. 
and I'm walking up to check up on him. And it is all these Guatemalan farmers with machetes just looking at me like, what did you just do? (laughs) (laughs) And they get out of the truck. I'm like, I am screwed. I'm screwed. I'm like, I just found him. I was like, hey, man, I just found him. Look at the tire marks. You see my tire marks? They go around. There's no like, there's no abrupt stops here. You know, he wasn't bleeding from anywhere. Uh, and they start waking up and he's drunk. So he was just drunk. And oh, he was just really. wasted. I was like, oh, my God, thank God. And I just got out of there. Yeah. <laughs> That's a scary situation, man. Oh, uh, can I tell you the scariest? Yeah, please do. All right. Uh, this one time another... in Guatemala? This one time? Thank you. <laughs> So I was I was kidnapped for about an hour in Guatemala City. Oh my goodness! It is my last day working as uh, the program director of this nonprofit organization that I poured my heart and soul into, and for three years worked at least eighty hour work weeks, sometimes over a hundred. And I had one more thing to do that day. This is my la- my very last day on the clock. My last thing I had to do was go and deposit a check that we got. Um, I actually did some uh, grant writing down there. I got a check from uh, United Way, and all I had to do was go down to Guatemala City where our bank was and deposit it. So as I'm driving down from Antigua down to Guatemala City, by the way, Antigua, Guatemala, so gorgeous. Oh, and my situation awareness, like I said, is usually spot on. Today it was not. I was in some type of reflection mode. I'm like, the last five years of my life have been so crazy. And this is the last thing I need to do. And I get to leave. And, I, and it was time for me to leave. I was so burned out from that job. I pull up to this, this stoplight. Um, usually I run yellow lights. Not usually. I always ran yellow lights down there. <laughs> Red lights were a suggestion. A suggestion? A, a suggestion. <laughs> a strong suggestion, but usually a suggestion. Uh, you're the white dude driving a shell van that says doctor's. You have a huge target on your back in one of the most dangerous cities in Latin America. I pull up to the stoplight and it turns yellow. And I was like, "Mm, I'm going to stop. And this Spider-Man sense came over me. I started looking for clowns. Clowns, by the way, down in Latin America, clowns are okay here in the United States. Down in Latin America, they terrified me. I have too many clown stories. We just don't have enough time, time, Sam, to go into these clown stories. (laughs) But clowns. That's that's crazy, (laughs) Bill. One, one of the clowns, so it, if you see a clown on a street corner down there, like look out because they could do their little clown trick and then they come up to the car and they pull a gun out as they're asking for money. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So I start looking for clowns and there's no clowns. It was a red light now and the cars are coming uh, right in front of me. But then this Nissan, this, uh, sorry, it was a Honda Civic. This Honda Civic pulls up to me at a really aggressive angle. I'm like, well, that's just weird. And the back door opens and this guy comes out and he's staring at me. I'm like, oh, that's that's even weirder. Another guy pops out and he's got a gun and he's pointing at my windshield. I was like, oh, fuck. So the guy that doesn't have the gun walks around the front of my car and he wants to get into my side of the shuttle van. I get out of the shuttle van and present him the shuttle van that he wants. And I'm about to walk away. And he starts pushing me back in. And at this point, the gun's on the other side. Gunman doesn't have a good shot at me. But I forgot that my passport is still in the shuttle van, and I'm leaving that country in a week. And also, my cell phones are there, which is so stupid. But that 
that organization, we worked so damn hard in three years. And to lose those cell phones that had a lot of good contacts, I, I didn't want to, the next person that was coming in behind me, I didn't want to set them back. Stupidly, I, I jumped back in. That's not worth your life, man. <laughs> I know. The passport, though, was like, oh. So I jumped back in, and I opened up the side where the gunman is. Gunman gets in, puts the, uh, he had a nine. Uh, I don't know, it was a clock or something, but I'll, 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 I'll tell you how I knew that it was a nine millimeter coming up here in a minute. But he gets in the side, points the gun in my ribs, and the other guy starts driving, and we start following the Honda Civic that, that they pulled out of. And they're driving crazy because they are so panicked right now. They start asking me all these questions in Spanish really fast. Like, hey, man, where are the papers in the car? Are there any alarms on this car? And so at that point, I'm like, I don't want to break out my Spanish yet. I'm staring at my passport that's right in front of me, about three feet away. It's like, this is the whole reason why I got back in was this passport, that fucking passport and those cell phones. So I'm answering their, their questions very slowly as I'm lurching forward to go for the cell phones and passport i was like the alarms are underneath your seat and i'm getting closer and closer and then the gunman just like looks at me he's like what the fuck are you doing as i'm trying to reach for the passport and then that's when i just broke out my spanish I was like hey man that's my passport these are my cell phones they're not going to do you any good i'm just taking it here are where the alarms are here's where the papers are at and they started to calm down a little bit he actually let me take my passport the cell phones oh, he didn't want me taking Jeez. at the end of this this experience he did give me back my cell phones but without the batteries you know smart move he didn't want me calling the cops right away not like the cops were going to do anything down there so we pull up we're following this honda civic around we pull up to this intersection uh on um uh pan american highway and so it's like a ramp that goes into pan american highway this is broad daylight by the way and He's like, all right, you need to get in this Honda Civic. You need to come with me. I was like, if I go in this Honda Civic, I'm a dead man. I am fucking dead if I get in that Honda Civic. So I get out, passenger side, the gunman right there. There is people 10 yards in front of us just staring at this whole situation. The guy that was driving the shuttle van, he speeds off. And right now I'm thinking I can sprint behind the shuttle van. I can maybe go around the car. I can split to section uh, I, have, I have a half a second to make a decision i get in the car i didn't know what to do i was like if i run this way i'm gonna get shot if i go that way I get shot if i get in the car i'm dead all right i'm gonna get in the car i don't know what else to do so get in the car I close the door now the gunman's on the left side let's go back in my ribs the guy in the front saw that i was the gringo he turns around he's like i don't want to hurt you just need shallow van and this is this is where uh, it's like, hey, man, I only got one question for you. There's two soccer teams in Guatemala. There's a red team and a white team. So I go, hey, man, I just got one question for you. Are you a red fan or are you a white fan? And they're both like, the Reds. And I just started breaking out all my knowledge about who the soccer players were on the red team. I was like, I need to make these people like me or else I'm dead. And I understand Stockholm Syndrome because of this. Like, yeah. I bonded with these guys. I started breaking out my most vulgar Spanish that I knew to make them laugh. And they were laughing. And that's where I learned like self-defense can come in many different forms. It can come in learning how to fight. I'm all about jujitsu. My wife and I, we go and do jujitsu together. Uh, learning how to run, knowing how to shoot a gun, but also one that does really good self-defense to save my life was being able to make somebody laugh. 
So I started breaking out all my, you know, dirty Spanish and I was with them for an hour and we bonded. I knew about their entire lives. You know, one guy had two daughters was trying to get back to the United States to LA to send money to his family. The other guy had been shot by the cops once. He was a little bit hungover that morning. So at one point we pull into a parking lot and the driver gets out and he's like, we need to hang out here for a little bit of time because we're going to take that shuttle van and dearm it. So do you want any water? I'm going to go into this grocery store. I was like, no, man, I'm good. So now I'm just with the, the gunman on the left. And at this point I was like, I think I'm good. I don't think they're going to kill me. I'm not hundred percent sure yet. And I had taken some martial arts um, up at that point. And I know robberies down in Guatemala, ammo is expensive. So a lot of times you could get robbed and it's actually no ammo in the gun. I didn't think there was any ammo in the gun. So I was like, I don't think there's any rounds in there. I, I want to call this dude out. So I said to him, Sam, I'm not making this shit up. I was like, what kind of gun do you have? He's like, oh, I got, no, I don't remember what it was. I was like, oh, okay. Nine, and what kind of, you know, I didn't, I didn't know guns at the time. Like what kind of bullets do you have or rounds do you have? He's like, oh, it's nine, nine millimeter. I'm like, I have never felt a nine millimeter round. Can you take one out? I want to feel that in my hands. And at this point, I was like, I'm just going to fucking elbow him, like do some Chuck Norris move right in the face and then get out of this car and start running. I hear him mess with the gun. And then my eyes were supposed to be closed at this point because he told me the entire time, keep my eyes closed. Got my left hand out and he takes the round. He puts it right in my hands. Oh, shit. The gun is loaded. (laughs) Fuck, dude. So at that point, I'm like, cool. That's that's what a that's what a round feels like. All right. The, the driver gets back in the car and we're in that situation for another 15, 20 minutes. They apologize to me. They give me back my cell phones without the batteries. And they said, we're sorry that we robbed your shuttle van. At that point, they already know like why, why I was driving the shuttle van around. I was like, I'm, I'm here to help your people out. <laughs> yeah. Try to get them surgery. And they're like, yeah, man, I'm sorry. It's just business is business. And then let me go. That was, that was one week before I left that country. That's nuts, dude. Also, not my craziest story from that week. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You've got quite a bit of life experience. Yeah, man. And then just, you know, being a flight nurse and a first responder, uh, just adds, like we all do. We just have so many great stories from that profession. I mean, you can write a book just in the stories that you've had in Guatemala, you know, and everywhere else that you've been. Yeah. Yeah. That one time in band camp. Yeah. That one time <laughs> in band camp. <laughs> I do want to say this, like I, I have, um, you know, one of the things that's helped me through some of these situations, you know, being carjacked and kidnapped for a while that can create a, a PTSD situation. Yes, it can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the calls that we have run, you know, you know, as a flight nurse, uh, I remember showing up to a scene and um, we were supposed to transport a, a child that I think had RSV, was brought into the hospital and they couldn't get an airway on the kid. They did CPR and they ended up passing away. Um, the screams of the mother shouting, I am sorry, over and over again, waiting for the husband to show up, you know, those type of moments can really just stick with you and stay with you. Yes, and what is can. what has helped me through all those situations is writing. Um, the way I've processed these calls is 
after the call has happened or after the situations happens, I'll go home and write all the sights, all the sounds out, right into a journal. And then I often listen to music while I do it. I like music that doesn't really have any lyrics or you can't really understand the lyrics, but just something that gets you in that mood. And I might cry while I'm doing it, but it's just, it's coming out. Then the next day I'll look at it again. I'll maybe make some edits. The next day I might send it off to somebody or I'll just bury it somewhere. But by day three, it's helped out tremendously. I actually came across an article not too long ago from a Journal of American Medical Association of Psychiatry. And it talked about what something called is a, uh, something called wet therapy or writing exposure therapy and, and how it compares to prolonged exposure therapy or also cognitive based therapy. And this is really cool study. They had 178 veterans with PTSD. Half of them were put into the WET program, the other were put, so the writing exposure therapy group, and the other were put into this prolonged exposure therapy group. Now, the conclusion of this study is really cool, that the writing exposure therapy was not significantly greater in outcomes than the prolonged exposure therapy, or in other words, it was just as effective as the prolonged exposure therapy. But the cool thing was is that the WET group only had five to seven, 45 to 60 minute sessions. And these were sessions where they would go just write down their experience. And the other group that was uh, in the prolonged exposure therapy had eight to 15, 90 minute sessions. So two to three times more therapy. And a lot, the dropout rate for the prolonged exposure therapy was greater because you are opening yourself up to a complete stranger that your trust might not be there. Where the written exposure therapy wasn't necessarily like that. It was you're just writing something traumatic and maybe talking about it. I didn't know that's what I was doing all those years. And it's cool to see a study to say, hey, this helps. This is something that you can do at any moment, any time of the day, wherever you are. You can always have a pen and paper nearby. You don't need resources for this. I'm not advocating this instead of doing therapy, but maybe this is something that a first responder or nurse isn't doing that they could try. I've hurt myself a lot, a lot of like uh, physical injuries, I should clarify, you know, from sports endeavors. And one thing with physical rehab that I've learned that is sometimes it's not just one thing. It's not just physical therapy. It's not just massage therapy or a chiropractor or acupuncture. It is all those things combined together that helped me overcome an injury. I've had some really fucked up shoulders. Um, and it took me two years to rehab my shoulder injury. And it was these different modalities of therapy that got me through. And I think the same could be said about perhaps PTSD, that it's not maybe just one modality of therapy. It's a few different modalities of therapy. And this might be one that we first responders are not using enough, that is just at our disposal at all times. So it's something I just want to share with, with everybody that if you haven't tried it, try it. You don't need to write a novel. You don't need to write an essay. It can be anything. It could be a lyrics to a shitty song. It can make absolutely no sense. It could be grammatically incorrect. It doesn't matter. It just needs to come from the heart. It just needs to be something that is so deep down inside and you're exposing it out. And I think it, and I hope that would make a difference for some people out there. Sure. No, that's 
fucking fantastic, man. It's like a whole other level of emotional intelligence, right? Because you're exposing yourself to yourself. And instead of keeping that deep down, you're expressing it in a way that maybe you haven't normally done it or done it before in the past. And it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't matter if it's grammatically correct or not, because we all know that nurses can't spell. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding, though. (laughs) I know a lot of paramedics that can't spell either. (laughs) Dispatchers are absolutely the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Going to a call on a 39-year-old, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) We We had one the other day. They were trying to spell Levafed, and it was Alivat. Was I, can't, I don't even remember. Alivafed or something like that. It's just so wonky, dude. And you're like, why? Somebody's <laughs> going to have to look that med up before we get there. Is that Mike's yes. per minute? Or is, is that yeah. weight based? Like what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're, you're correct in saying that it doesn't matter how it comes off or anything and you don't have to share it if you don't want to i mean get rid of the pages or erase it if you're doing it on an ipad or on some type of digital format but it is worth a try at least code green campaign was a i have you heard of the code green campaign mm-hmm. um i love what they're doing too i don't know what happened to their website but they used to have stories from first responders you can still find it if you go to the code green website there's like a search box or search engine you put in uh, stories and it'll pop up and you can read other first responders stories and they stopped doing it a few years ago i actually reached out to code green and was like hey man what why aren't you guys doing this anymore and this was fantastic i unfortunately I never got a response I, I know they're busy but i i find it such a great way to very quickly de-stress from a critical situation that you've you've been in a pen and a paper maybe some music and just write because you're bringing something that's internal out and if you can if you can see it you can tame it a lot of times if you can't see the problem you don't you don't know what's going on but if you write it on a piece of paper you can see it you can tame it yeah no that's fantastic and you're not the first person to tell me you're probably the third or fourth person to talk about uh writing stories down you know jessica talked about it and robin talked about it as well and it's not something that I participate in but it's I don't feel confident enough in my writing skills but that's just me and I enjoy the more verbal aspect of it you know I enjoy sharing stories more than that but that's just me personally and if if writing is something that helps you and if it's something you've never tried before you definitely should it's there ain't going nowhere exactly and it, it doesn't have to go anywhere if you don't want it to go anywhere right yeah you can you can just write it throw it in the campfire put it in a journal come back to it or never come back to it sure. just the point of just writing it's the same as talking to somebody just getting something off your chest whether if you're verbally doing it or you're writing it out it's the same concept yes so do you feel comfortable sharing you know one of your your worst stories yeah we got a few bad ones you know it's funny with ems being a nurse like one of my first stories is ems and it's not like the worst i'll, I'll tell you the worst in a second but it's just it's funny how some things will stick with you, even though it wasn't a long call, mm-hmm. or it was just maybe a brief second. Like that woman screaming, "I'm so sorry to her dead child." I mean that that sticks with me. The first time I saw in uniform a, a dead body was we we walked in on a wellness check, and it's this old man, and he's slumped over on at at his uh, table in a very cold house. He wrapped a blanket around himself. 
and he was dead. I don't know for how long, or, but he was he was dead. We, we didn't even start. Like, we didn't do anything. We just showed up like, yeah, that guy's passed. Um, but the sight of that that old man just sitting there wrapped in a blanket, you don't know what that guy's background was. That could have been a, a World War II hero. He could have been a teacher that had influenced thousands of kids. And he's got nobody there except a tiny little dog that's whimpering by his side. You know, stuff like that just sticks with you. But my worst story was one time at band camp. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a, the organization I worked for, um, we would provide cleft lip, cleft palate surgeries to children. And a lot of the children, if you have a cleft lip or cleft palate, you cannot properly latch on to the breast of a mother. So you're not getting the proper nourishment. And you could be, that baby could be severely malnourished and would need a few weeks in a hospital to fatten up to survive a surgery. So this nonprofit I worked for, we would also bring in these these malnourished children into a nursery so they could be there for a few weeks until they were big enough to survive a surgery. One of the children, one of the babies died in the infirmary, suspected that the, the child caught pneumonia, um, the baby caught pneumonia and passed away. So as a director, it was my job, or made it my job to go and transport that baby back to their Guatemalan family. So I lived, you know, five hours from that hospital. I got up early and I drove there. And it is it is so sobering to pick up this tiny casket. Take your time, man. Man, even years later, pick up a tiny casket and you put it in a van to drive back to a village. The people you don't know. I was worried that I was actually worried for my life that day too, because you don't know you're a white dude. You're driving back to a village of uh, farmers that trusted you with their child. So I was thinking of contingency plans when I got there and escape routes. Cause they see me bring in a child that they trusted. And now I'm bringing back a, a dead baby. They have this expression down there, it's shut up or the, or the gringo is going to take you away. And there is this theory that we're so big because we eat children. These are some of the like rumors that are in the far out villages of, of Guatemala. They're saying and the, that's where the I was going. gringos are so big because they eat children. Yeah. Yeah. That we are so big because yeah. And so here I am bringing back a dead baby to family. We, my organization, we arranged for a drop-off spot uh, to the family in the center of this town, which we thought was the safest thing, broad daylight, but lynchings happens down there. So when we get, when I got there, I was by myself and I had one of my, uh, my area managers meet me um, at the drop-off spot where the family was waiting, pull up and it's probably like 30, 30 people or so. And they uh, surround the car as I'm pulling in. I get out of the car. I go to the back. And I pull out this tiny little casket. And I start bawling. Like, I had this whole speech ready to go. And I couldn't even get it out. And I uh, I passed the casket over to the father. And helped him put him in the pickup truck. And they started speaking in, in Kekshi, which I know a few words, but not enough. And the area manager was translated for me and the family had never seen a casket before. 
and they were so grateful that we had taken the time to put their loved one, their little baby, into a casket so they can go and, and properly bury their baby in their cemetery. That was hard. That was probably one of the, the tougher things I've ever had to do in my life. I've had some really rough calls too, but that one, that one kind of takes it. Well, I'm good. I'm glad to hear that the family was so grateful to you because services like that are hard to find. You know what I mean? You hear about people who pass away in different states from here, you know, and you have to pay thousands of dollars just to get their bodies back to their families. And I mean, it sounds like when you were in Guatemala that you were very young in your mid twenties and yeah, yeah. It's, you took on a lot of responsibility being that program director out there. I mean, it sounds like you're probably a really old soul who's had more uh, balls than most people at that age. You know what I mean? You definitely had a, a good head on your shoulders and you know, for that family to be grateful, that's good to hear. And it's, I'm sad that you hurt so bad for that, but look at that positive outcome. You got, you gave them the opportunity to take that child and bury them properly and get them to where they needed to be and helped that family in a position where not a lot of people would have done that. Yeah. And when you're exposed to those type of things, especially in like EMS or nursing, where do you go with that? You know, what do you talk to afterwards? That's something I wish I knew. I wish more first responder and nurses were taught that. You're not, you're not taught any of that in nursing school. I sure shit wasn't taught that in EMT basic. Hey, you're going to see some traumatic stuff. What are you going to do with your thoughts afterwards? It's okay to cry. I can cry today on a podcast. You know, and this call happens, you know, decades ago. And um, what resources are out there? What's your coping mechanism? Because it's not drinking. It's great to go out with friends, have some drinks, but it's that that's only going to make things worse, especially when it starts fucking with your sleep. Yeah. But having a podcast like this, which is why I just admire you so much because our profession, we need, we need innovators. We need influencers. We need educators, advocate, uh, entertainers and advocators. And you're doing all that with this podcast. The more people that can, can hear these stories, the better our profession is going to be. I'm hoping one day you had somebody on it that said, I, I wish I remember her name, but she's like, if you break your leg at work, you get work in this comp. But if you break your brain, you get to go back the next day. And that's just not right. Yeah, that was Chio. Hopefully, Chio loves that. Hopefully, the more that we can influence the general public, the more that we do things like maybe write a book, maybe have coffee that's out there that's from a first responder. Like, uh, what's that dude's... Uh, Fire Department Chronicles, Jason Patton, you know, he's getting coffee out there now. More that we can influence the general public when something comes around at the state level or federal level that says, you know what, we need to make it mandatory that if a first responder is having issues, we're going to pay for it. That's just not there yet. It's nowhere near there. Yeah. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, sir. Writing that book, I'm so excited to read that, man. I'm so excited. And now hearing the background on on how you created it and all of the things that you've done and the time that you've put into it, it's just gonna make it that much sweeter. Oh, so hit me up, tell me what you think. I can't wait to have you read it and just tell me like, yeah, dude, your medicine, spot on. No, it's not spot on. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is what the job is like. I would love to hear it. Sure, yes, I will. And can people find you on social media? 
yeah the only platform i'm doing right now is instagram so dd finder delta delta finder okay instagram <laughs> and then uh right now my website's uh, ddfinder.com i'm gonna make this book available when this episode drops that book will be on amazon perfect awesome man uh great great conversation i have been looking forward to this one for quite some time and I'm super excited that we got to finally get together and sit down and have an episode, man. Likewise, um, October 28th, I will be in Albuquerque, first responder day, bombs away, 12 to 2 p.m. If if you and anybody listening wants to show up, I'm gonna have a book signing there. That's the official launch day, although the book will be out before then. Um, but I think I'm going to make all the proceeds that day, 100% of the proceeds that day on October 28th are going to go to those three nonprofits. So show up, buy a book, I'll sign it. We'll, all those proceeds will go to those three nonprofits, and I would just love to meet anybody there. So um, hope to meet, see you guys there too. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, and we'll we'll keep in touch, and we'll get it figured out, all right, brother? You guys rock. You do Strong too, work. bro. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yep. Have a good day, bud. Take care. See ya. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 nonsense merch page and our recently released noon gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week. Bye.